reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger for Wednesday, January 4th, 2023. My name is Rachel Thorson Mithelman, and I'm glad to be your reader this morning. Looking at the front page, we have one, two, three, four, five stories that begin there. The first with the largest headline is Supervisors Have New Chair and Vice Chair. It's accompanied by a photograph of Webster County Supervisor Nikki Conrad, who was voted to be the chairperson for 2023. This is by Kelby Wingert. Excuse me. The Webster County Board of Supervisors has a new chairperson and vice chairperson for the first time in several years. On Tuesday morning at the annual reorganization meeting, the board voted to appoint Supervisor Nikki Conrad to the chairperson role. Conrad represents District 4 in Webster County and was re-elected to a second term last November. Supervisor Nick Carlson of District 5 was appointed vice chairperson. Previously, Supervisor Mark Campbell, District 2, served as the board chair for several years and Conrad served as vice chair for 2022. Tuesday also marked the first board meeting for newly elected District 1 Supervisor Austin Hayek, who was elected to replace the retiring Keith Denklaw. Denklaw retired after serving District 1 for 16 years. In other business, the board approved the transfer of the title of a vacant lot in the Lincoln neighborhood of Fort Dodge. The property at 703 4th Avenue North was the site of a February 2015 fire that took the lives of three. The burned remains of the home were demolished in October of 2015. The county county has held more than $40,000 in tax liens on the property since June of 2018. Under the City of Fort Dodge's 2016 Comprehensive Plan, the property is a site of potential redevelopment for the Lincoln neighborhood. With Tuesday's board approval, the title of the property will be transferred to the City of Fort Dodge. The supervisors were also given their board and committee assignments for the year. Ryan Keem was appointed drainage attorney for 2023. Andy Stanberg was appointed weed commissioner for 2023. Jeff Johnson was reappointed planning and zoning administrator for 2023. Beth Collins was reappointed to the conservation board. Ernie Kirsten was reappointed to the Board of Adjustment. Tommy Smith and Tyler Lane were reappointed to the Planning and Zoning Commission. Marie Sheeter was reappointed to the Veterans Affairs Commission. Austin Hayek, Vicki Reek, and Sharon Stroh were appointed to the Midas Council of Governments Board. Dylan Hagen was reappointed as the Disaster Services Coordinator for 2023. And the Messenger and the Gowrie News were named official county newspapers for 2023. Next on the front page, Fort Dodge parents plead not guilty to infant murder. This also by Kelby Wingert. The parents accused of drowning their newborn in November 
have pleaded not guilty to their not guilty to their charges in Webster County District Court. Taylor K. Blaha, age 24, and her boyfriend, Brandon David Thoma, age 31, are both facing charges of first-degree murder, a Class A felony. Thoma faces an additional charge of abuse of a corpse, a Class C felony. Both defendants filed written pleas of not guilty on Tuesday and both asserted their rights to a speedy trial. Blaha and Thoma, both of Fort Dodge, are accused of drowning their newborn baby girl and disposing of her body somewhere around Fort Dodge around November 16 of 2022. According to the criminal complaint, Blaha gave birth to the girl inside the bathroom of the apartment she shared with Thoma at 927 Central Avenue. At the time of the birth, Blaha told investigators Thoma was in the adjacent bedroom. After she gave birth, Thoma helped Blaha move from the toilet to the bathtub. A short time later, the document says Blaha and Thoma together held the infant under the water in the bathtub, drowning and ultimately killing her. In the early morning hours of November 17th, Thoma allegedly left the apartment building with the baby's body inside a backpack to dispose of the remains. Following an investigation, the pair were arrested and charged on December 7th of 2022. A trial for Blaha has been scheduled for February 28th. A trial date for Thoma has not yet been scheduled. Thoma is being held in the Webster County Jail on a $1,050,000 cash-only bond. Blaha is being held at the Hamilton County Jail on a $1,000,000 cash-only bond. First-degree murder is a Class A felony that carries a mandatory life sentence if convicted. Abuse of a corpse is a Class C felony and carries a maximum prison sentence of 10 years. Next on the front page, Webster County man plea I'm sorry, West Webster County man leads multiple agencies on pursuit. This by Kelby Wingert. Several area law enforcement agencies spent most of Tuesday afternoon searching a wooded area north of Dayton for a fugitive wanted on several warrants. According to Webster County Sheriff Luke Fleener, Boone Police and the Boone County Sheriff's Office attempted a traffic stop on 36-year-old Bradley Hobbin around 1.30 p.m. Tuesday in Boone County. Hobbin then led the officers on a pursuit north on Iowa Highway 17 into Hamilton County, where the Hamilton County Sheriff's Office joined the chase. The pursuit then turned west toward Webster County, where Hobbin abandoned the truck near a wooded area just north of Dayton between Racine Avenue and Scout Drive and continued on foot. The WCSO took custody of the vehicle and the foot pursuit to apprehend Hobbin began. Deputies from the Webster, Boone, and Hamilton County Sheriff's offices and troopers with the Iowa State Patrol searched the area. A canine team from the Carroll County Sheriff's Office was brought in to assist, as well as drones from the Boone Police Department and the ISP. 
An AR-style rifle was recovered near the truck after Hobbin fled, Fleener said. After several hours, the search was called off due to the weather conditions and the sun going down. It got dark and it wasn't safe for people to be out there, Fleener said. The search was focused on a two-square-mile perimeter, he added. Anyone who knows the whereabouts of Hobbin is encouraged to contact law enforcement immediately by calling this number, 515-573-2323. The next story on the front page, Seven Dogs Die in Tuesday Morning Fire. This also by Kelby Wingert. Seven dogs were the casualties of a house fire in Fort Dodge on Tuesday morning. According to a release from Fort Dodge Fire Chief Steve Hergenrader, around 8.44 a.m., a neighbor noticed smoke coming from 921 M. Vets Drive and called 911. When the Fort Dodge Fire Department crews arrived, they found heavy smoke coming from the house and forced entry to the home to make an interior attack on the fire. The crews found flames in the kitchen and a first-floor bedroom and quickly extinguished the blaze. The home's occupant was not present at the time of the fire, but seven dogs in the house died from smoke inhalation. Extensive fire damage was found in the kitchen and bedroom, and the rest of the house sustained heavy smoke and heat damage. The investigation determined... Sorry, need to turn the page. The cause of the fire to be accidental and originating in the kitchen. The house is owned by George and Sandy Hudson. Fort Dodge Fire Department was assisted by the Fort Dodge Police Department and Mid-American Energy Company. The Fort Dodge Fire Department called a second alarm to bring in additional staff to the scene and to be available for other emergency medical and fire calls. The blaze was the second home fire in two days in Fort Dodge. A duplex home at 2669 4th Avenue North was heavily damaged by a Monday morning fire. And at the bottom of the front page, another one of the Taking Center Stage uh, features that feature um, graduating seniors. This is Taking Center Stage with Amelia Rake and it's titled Showing Expression. This is by Chris Johnson. As an early bystander, Amelia Rake first saw a color guard performance. When she witnessed a big toss, she was intrigued. But then when a friend put a flag in her hand, the Fort Dodge Senior High Senior was all in. I first had the idea that I might want to join color guard when I saw someone do a big toss and I was awestruck. My friend Neva, who was already in color guard, decided to put a flag in my hand and teach me a few tosses, and I was hooked, Rake said. The feeling of power and excitement when I nail a toss or trick was so addicting, and two years later still is. I love how color guard is both graceful and powerful. I love how creative it allows me to be, whether I write my own routine or perform work that has already been written. When I have a flag or a rifle in my hands, I feel invincible, powerful, and beautiful. I also love the community of the team. 
We are all different people from different backgrounds united by a shared passion. We have each other's backs, and we can all become one when we take the field or floor, individually contributing to the bigger, beautiful picture. While at Fort Dodge Senior High, Rake has been involved in band, color guard, speech, theater, and 4-H. She was recently in the high school's rendition of Radium Girls for the fall play. While being on stage in theater, expressing herself has brought the most enjoyment. I will never tire of the pure euphoria I feel when I'm on stage. I love being able to express myself and connect with my audience through my performance, Rake said. That rush when I am on stage with all eyes on me, being confident in what I am doing and terrified of messing up, will always be an indescribably amazing feeling. I also love the feeling after a performance I know I nailed. It's absolutely overwhelming, and I cannot stop smiling or shaking. Overall, the most special part of performing is the joy that it brings me. With performing, there also comes the chance to be creative. My Color Guard solo this past December has been one of my favorite performances I've ever done. I spent almost six months writing a routine to the song Young and Beautiful, Young and Beautiful by Lana Del Rey, Rake said. The routine involves some dance work, which my friend Reese Peterson was kind enough to help me write. A regular six-foot flag, which was black and purple with shiny silver detail, and two white swing flags intended to resemble angel wings. This was my favorite performance because I had worked so hard on it and put my heart and soul into it. Everything I had worked out, worked at, I'm sorry, everything I had worked at for the past two years, all my passion was poured out in my routine. Rake, one of the captains of the color guard, enjoys being a part of the marching band as well, with the guard. Color guard adds color and visual to the marching band. Most of the time, when you are watching the marching band, you cannot see the band members' faces, Rake said. The color guard is there to add color, flair, facials, and emotion, and in a way adds a theatrical element to the band. The colors of the flags, the creativity of our movements and our uniforms, usually designed to match the theme of the show, take the marching band performance up a few notches and create a show that is stunning to both listen to and, wa and watch. Being involved has given Rake a chance to make memories and show her talent on stage. Being involved is important to me for many reasons. I have had so many positive experiences and made memories that will last me a lifetime throughout all I have been involved with. I also love how I have been pushed way past my comfort zone and achieved more than I ever would have believed I was capable of, Rake said. Even when I drop my flag, get smacked in the face with a rifle going full speed, forget a line, or get stage fright, pushing past all of it and doing a great performance anyway has made me stronger, tougher, more resilient, and has taught me life lessons I could never learn anywhere else. I also love being part of something bigger than myself. Knowing that I can contribute to a breathtaking show, whether that's in color guard, theater, or band, feels absolutely amazing. 
I love the community that we can create. Band is such a loving community, and I admire how we can all be there for one another, push each other to be even better, make memories, laugh, and learn about ourselves, each other, and the world around us. With taking part in so many activities, it sometimes becomes difficult to manage, but keeping a strict eye on scheduling is a key component. Staying organized is crucial to juggling multiple activities, keeping track of practice schedules and remembering where I need to be and when has been challenging for me, especially when things pile up and overlap, Rake said. My biggest trick for keeping track of everything has been to write everything down in a planner and on my calendar. It's way easier to just write down every single rehearsal and make checklists of everything I need to bring with me than to just try and remember everything. While in speech, there are different events a student can take part in, and a strong performance may get chosen as an all-state submission. Rake created a piece that earned her that honor. My other most memorable experience was finding out that I had been nominated for all-state last year for individual speaking in spontaneous speaking. Spontaneous speaking is an event where you draw three topics out of an envelope, pick one, and you have three minutes to write your speech on the spot, and you give your speech when those three minutes are over, Rake said. After the state contest, my speech teacher, Mrs. Krug, has an all-state watch party where we pile around Mrs. Krug's computer and refresh it for an hour straight as we await the results of who was nominated. When I saw that I had been nominated, I was frozen in shock for about 20 seconds, and then reality set in, and I was absolutely ecstatic, bouncing around the room, squealing and crying happy tears. It was one of the happiest moments of my entire life. Through all her endeavors, Rake has had numerous influences she has been able to lean on. My English teacher and speech coach, Mrs. Ms. Rouse, has been one of my biggest influences in my performing career, Rake said. During my sophomore year, she decided that I needed to try speech, and after a lot of encouragement, begging, and arm-twisting, I did join, and that was my introduction to the world of performing, and also the best decision I have ever made in my entire life. While with the Color Guard and theater, Rake has met some people that have helped guide her. My Color Guard coach, Laura Klein-Ferry, has also been a huge inspiration to me pushing me to work hard and be better, believing in me and encouraging me when I needed it most, Rake said. My band teacher, Mr. Paulson, has always encouraged me and has given me several shoves out of my comfort zone, breaking me out of my shell. My theater teacher, Mama Krug, has also influenced me to keep performing and has been so sweet and encouraging as I dive headfirst into new areas of theater whether on stage or backstage. I am also very blessed to have made so many friends in the performing world who all share my love of art and performing and inspire me every day. My family has also stood by me as I explored more and more of the world of performing. After graduating from Fort Dodge Senior High, Rake plans on attending Iowa State University in Ames to major in psychology and have a career as a mental health therapist.
Let's look at that always interesting column called This Date in History. This is from the Associated Press. Today is Wednesday, January 4th, the fourth day of 2023. There are 361 days left in the year. On January 4th, 2007, Nancy Pelosi was elected the first female speaker of the House as Democrats took control of Congress. Also on this date, in 1821, the first native-born American saint, Elizabeth Ann Seton, died in Emmitsburg, Maryland. On this date, in 1935, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, in his State of the Union address, called for legislation to provide assistance for the jobless, elderly, impoverished children, and the disabled. On this date in 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson delivered his State of the Union address in which he outlined the goals of his, quote, great society, end quote. On this date in 2002, Sergeant First Class Nathan Ross Chapman, a U.S. Army Special Forces soldier, was killed by small arms fire during an ambush in eastern Afghanistan. Afghanistan. He was the first American military death from enemy fire in the war against terrorism. On this date, 10 years ago, Britney Spears lost custody of her two sons to ex-husband Kevin Federline, a day after police and paramedics were called to her home. On this date, five years ago, the new Congress passed a $9.7 billion bill to help pay flood insurance claims to homeowners, renters, and businesses damaged by Superstorm Sandy. And on this date, one year ago, nearly a year after the deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, a poll by the Associated Press and the NORC Center for Public Affairs Research found that only about four in ten Republicans recalled the attack by supporters of Donald Trump as violent or extremely violent. Just 22% of Republicans said Trump bore significant responsibility for the riot. Page two of The Messenger has some national news. There's a photograph at the top of the page of Vice President Kamala Harris administering the oath of office to U.S. Senator Charles Grassley as he begins his eighth term in the Senate. Grassley's wife, Barbara, holds the family Bible. Grassley is now the longest-serving member of the Senate. He will serve on the Judiciary, Finance, Agriculture, and Budget Committees. And beneath that, the article about the latest House of Representatives fight over the Speaker position. McCarthy's fight with GOP's right flank stalls Speaker bid. This from the AP in Washington. Failing to elect party leader Kevin McCarthy as the new Speaker of the House, Republicans adjourned in disarray Tuesday night ending a raucous first day of the new Congress, but hoping to somehow regroup Wednesday from this historic defeat. The abrupt end to a long, messy day one showed there's no easy way ahead for Kevin McCarthy, 
who promised to fight to the finish to claim the gavel despite opposition from the chamber's most conservative members. Needing 218 votes in the full House, McCarthy got just 203 in two rounds, less even than Democrat Hakeem Jeffries in the GOP-controlled chamber, and fared even worse with 202 in round three. Tensions rose as night fell on the new House majority, and all other business came to a halt. The House agreed to return at noon on Wednesday. Kevin McCarthy is not going to be a speaker, declared Representative Bob Good, Republican of Virginia, one of the holdouts. McCarthy had pledged a battle on the floor for as long as it took to overcome right-flank fellow Republicans, who were refusing to give him their votes. But it was not at all clear how the embattled GOP leader could rebound after becoming the first House Speaker nominee in 100 years to fail to win the gavel with his party in the majority. Without a Speaker, the House cannot fully form. Swearing in its members, naming its committee chairman, engaging in floor proceedings, and launching investigations of the Biden administration. We all came here to get things done, said the second-ranking Republican Representative Steve Scalise in a rousing speech urging his colleagues to drop their protest. Railing against Democratic President Joe Biden's agenda, Scalise, himself a possible GOP compromise choice, said, We can't start fixing those problems until we elect Kevin McCarthy, our next speaker. It was a tumultuous start to a new Congress and pointed to a difficult road ahead with Republicans now in control of the House. Lawmakers' families waited around as what's normally a festive day descended into chaos, with kids playing in the aisles <clears throat> excuse me, or squirming in parents' arms. A new generation of conservative Republicans, many aligned with Donald Trump's Make America Great Again agenda, want to upend business as usual in Washington and were committed to stopping McCarthy's rise without concessions to their priorities. The American people are watching, and it's a good thing, said Representative Chip Roy, Republican of Texas, who nominated fellow conservative Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio as an alternative for speaker. It was the second time conservatives pushed forward a reluctant Jordan, the McCarthy rival-turned-ally who earlier had risen to urge his colleagues, even those who backed Jordan, to vote for McCarthy. We have to rally around him, come together, Jordan said. In all, a core group of 19 Republicans and then 20 voted for Jordan, denying McCarthy the majority he needs. Smiling through it all, McCarthy appeared intent on simply trying to wear down his colleagues. Earlier, he strode into the chamber, posed for photos, and received a standing ovation from many on his side of the aisle. He was nominated by the third-ranking Republican, Representative Elise Stefanik of New York, who said the Californian from gritty Bakersfield has what it takes to lead the House. But a challenge was quickly raised by Representative Andy Biggs, Republican of Arizona a conservative former leader of the Freedom Caucus, who was nominated by a fellow conservative as speaker. The mood was tense, at least on the Republican side, as lawmakers rose from their seats in lengthy in-person voting. Democrats were upbeat as they cast their own historic votes for their leader, Jeffries of New York. In the first round tally, McCarthy won 203 votes, with 10 for Biggs, 
and nine for other Republicans. In the second, it was 203 for McCarthy and 19 for Jordan. On the third vote, McCarthy had 202 to Jordan's 20. Democrat Jeffries had the most, 212 votes, but no nominee won a majority. The one thing that's clear is he doesn't have the votes. Representative Byron Donalds, Republican of Florida, told CNN before joining with those voting for McCarthy. At some point, as a conference, we're going to have to figure out who does. The standoff over McCarthy has been building since Republicans appeared on track to win the House majority in the midterm elections in November. A new generation of Trump-aligned Republicans led the opposition to McCarthy, believing he's neither conservative enough nor tough enough to battle Democrats. While the Senate remains in Democratic hands, barely, House Republicans are eager to confront Biden after two years of the Democrats controlling both houses of Congress. After a private GOP morning meeting, a core group of conservatives, led by the Freedom Caucus and aligned with Trump, were furious, calling the meeting a beatdown by McCarthy allies and remaining steadfast in their opposition to the GOP leader. You're listening to the Fort Dodge Messenger, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm glad to be your reader this morning. My name is Rachel Thorson Mithelman. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. There are several obituaries and death notices in today's paper. The first is Inez Kopp. Inez Kopp, age 97, of Fort Dodge, passed away on Monday, January 2nd, at the Paula J. Baber Hospice Home in Fort Dodge. Services will be held at 10 o'clock Saturday, January 7th, at the Gunderson Funeral Chapel with Pastor Kendall Meyer officiating. Interment will follow at North Long Cemetery. Visitation will be held from 9 to 10 a.m. prior to the service at Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be left to the St. Paul Lutheran Church Radio Media Fund. Next, Greg T. Wiedauer. This from Pomeroy. Greg T. Widauer, age 50 of Pomeroy, passed away on Sunday, January 1st at the University of Iowa Hospital in Iowa City, Iowa. Funeral service is 10.30 a.m. Saturday, January 7th at Evangelical Covenant Church near Pomeroy with Pastor Grayson Dagonar officiating. Burial will be in Evangelical Covenant Cemetery near Pomeroy. Visitation is 4 to 6 p.m. Friday, January 6th at at Evangelical Covenant Church near Pomeroy. Powers Funeral Home of Pomeroy is handling the arrangements. Dan T. McGreevy. Dan T. McGreevy, age 77, of Fort Dodge, passed away on December 30th, 2022. Funeral services will be held on Saturday, January 7th at 10.30, with Monsignor Kevin McCoy officiating the Mass of Christian Burial. 
Burial will follow at Corpus Christi Cemetery with military rites conducted by the VFW Post 1856 and the U.S. Army Honor Guard. Visitation will be on Friday, January 6th from 5 to 7 at Lawfersweiler Funeral Home. Survivors include Dan's wife, Anne of Fort Dodge, son, Sean, spouse, Amy McGreevy of Overland Park, Kansas, daughter, Anne, spouse, Steve Book of Leewood, Kansas, stepsons, Kurt, spouse, Anne Duffield of Humboldt, Iowa, Jason, spouse, Jill Duffield of Altoona, grandchildren, Danica, Dodd, Megan McGreevy, Aaron McGreevy, Nathan, Book, Evan Book, Maggie Zilstra, Beth Duffield, Claire Duffield, Jack Duffield, Becca Barrick, and Sister Diane, spouse Roger Thompson. Danny Thomas McGreevy was born on December 5, 1945, in Little Rock, Arkansas. He was raised and educated in Des Moines, graduating, graduating from Dowling High School in 1963. He then attended the University of Iowa, where he served as the president of Pi Kappa Alpha fraternity, graduated from the ROTC program, and earned a bachelor's in accounting. After graduation, he was united in marriage to Jerry Hatzler, with whom he had his two children. He served in the U.S. Army, achieving the rank of first lieutenant. After his honorable discharge, he earned a law degree from Creighton University, where he was published in and served as the lead articles editor for the Creighton Law Review. After graduating in 1973, Dan began practicing law in Fort Dodge with Tom Price. In 1980, he formed the McGreevy Law Firm. In 1982, he was reunited in marriage to Anne Duffield, Dan practiced law until retiring in 2019. Dan loved to play golf at the Fort Dodge Country Club. He served as its president for three years and created and ran the Bill Hurd Foundation for many years, raising money to fund golf course improvements. Dan loved spending time with his family, whether it was playing golf, bowling, pool, or just telling stories while drinking Diet Pepsi and making his grandkids laugh. In lieu of flowers, the family requests that donations be made to the Alzheimer's Association. Next, Richard Monk. This from Humboldt. Richard Mervyn Monk passed peacefully Sunday, December 18th, 2022. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. Friday, January 6th, and visitation will be held on Thursday, January 5th from 5 to 7, both at Zion Lutheran Church in Humboldt. Interment will be at a later date in East Beaver Cemetery of Thor. Memorials may be made to the East Beaver Cemetery. The Mason Lindhart Funeral and Cremation Service of Humboldt is in charge of the arrangements. George Brown. George Leroy Brown, age 76, of Fort Dodge, passed away on Sunday, January 1, 2023, at Fort Dodge Health and Rehab. A graveside service will be 11 a.m. Saturday, January 7th, at Memorial Park Cemetery. George is survived by his sister, Wanda Brown Budden of Texas, niece, Teresa Hickson of Hendrick, Iowa, nephew, Glenn Budden of Texas, niece Rachel Budden Young, and many great nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents Chester and Elta Brown. 
George was born August 21, 1946. George lived his whole life in Fort Dodge except for his time spent in the Navy. He was honorably discharged. He worked many years for Best Western Motel. He also enjoyed delivering pizzas for Domino's. Next, Betty J. and Jack L. Sandvig. This from Twin Lakes. Funeral services for Betty and Jack Sandvig will be 11 a.m. Thursday, January 5th at St. Francis Catholic Church, Rockwell City, with Father Jim Birch officiating at the Mass of Christian Burial. There will be a military flag presentation by Ann Vets Post 41 of Rockwell City. Visitation will be 10 a.m. Thursday at the church until service time. Burial of caskets will be at St. Margaret's Cemetery in Rolfe. Memorials may be left to the discretion of the family. Then three short notices. This from Webster City, Jeffrey Rich. Visitation will be at Bowman Funeral Home on Saturday, January 7th from 1 to 2.45 p.m., followed by a memorial service at 3. Brett Lorenzen. Lorenzen. Brett Lee Lorenzen, age 58, of Webster City, Iowa, died Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. A gathering will be held at a later date. And Ryan Gangstead, this from Clarion. Memorial service is 6 p.m. on Friday, January 6th, 2023, at the Red Shed Event Center in Clarion. Visitation is from 4 to 6 at the Red Shed on Friday. I kind of messed up the order of things and should have read from the opinion page before the obituary, so now we'll return to the opinion page. The Messenger editorial is titled, Cookies, Bring Officers, Youth Closer Together. A number of police officers converged on Fort Dodge Senior High School on a morning shortly before Christmas for a happy occasion. The officers were the guests of honor and the recipients of box after box of Christmas goodies prepared by the Dodger softball team. Led by coach Andy Adams, the players decided to do something special for a group of people who are always there to protect them and everyone else in Fort Dodge. The goal was to give the officers a break from the regular grind for at least one morning. Being a police officer is never an easy job. The softball team's gesture came at a particularly tough time for the city's officers, who were in the midst of investigating the death of a newborn baby. The team members proved that in addition to being masters of the softball diamond, they are pretty handy at baking. But the effort was about more than providing Christmas cookies and other treats to the officers. It was really about recognizing what those officers do for the community every day. It was about showing appreciation in some small way for the role that those officers play in making the community safe for all. Adams told the messenger that effort was to, quote, humanize the officers and detectives and to build a stronger relationship and level of respect with who they are and what they do, end quote. The officers enjoyed the treats and the opportunity to meet with the softball team, according to Police Chief Roger Porter. The cookie effort gave the young women the opportunity to think about a group of public servants and the magnitude of what they do for the community. 
although it probably didn't seem like a lesson in any traditional sense of the word. It taught them a perspective that will make them better citizens. We thank Coach Adams for leading this lesson that benefited both the players and the officers, and we thank the players for embracing this special baking challenge. And an editorial by syndicated columnist Betsy McCoy. Yikes! Life is getting shorter in America. It's one thing when government raises your taxes, suffocates your business with regulations, or censors your tweets. It's far worse when government is to blame for actually shortening your life. U.S. life expectancy dropped to 76.4 years, the lowest in 25 years, according to new federal data. Americans should be gasping. What could be more important than having the chance to live a long life? The Center for Disease Control and Prevention repeatedly has blown its responsive to health killers like fentanyl, COVID, and lung cancer. All the while, life expectancy gets shorter and shorter. In 1980, Americans had one of the best life expectancies in the world. Since then, the U.S. has lost ground. People live several years longer in France, Switzerland, Italy, and other highly developed countries, reaching ages 83 or 84 on average. Residents of the Czech Republic, Chile, and Slovenia can expect longer lives than Americans. Even before COVID, the U.S. ranked 29th in life expectancy, according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. The virus merely widened an already alarming gap between the U.S. and other nations. Now, life expectancy in these other nations is rebounding from COVID, while Americans' lives continue to be cut short due to other causes. Start with the failure of our government, especially the CDC, to tackle the leading cause of death among Americans ages 18 to 49, overdosing. Two-thirds of these deaths are from fentanyl. Nearly 107,000 Americans died of overdoses in 2021, about 50% more than just two years earlier. Where's the campaign to combat, combat fentanyl deaths? Over the last half century, U.S. health agencies waged several stunningly successful media campaigns to dissuade Americans from smoking cigarettes. The CDC has done nothing like that to fight this new killer. Blame the agency's mission confusion. In September of 2021, as overdoses soared and COVID raged, the CDC launched a campaign for inclusive communication. The agency instructed healthcare workers to avoid stigmatizing words like illegal immigrant and substitute parent for gender-tainted terms like mother and father, as if political correctness is more important than preventing deaths. The CDC's failed response to COVID further depressed American life expectancy. Agency head Rochelle Walensky said, To be frank, we are responsible for, for some pretty dramatic, pretty public mistakes, from testing to data to communications. The U.S. has had a higher per capita death rate from COVID than other developed countries, including the United Kingdom, France, Spain, and Canada. As COVID fades, the CDC's inaction on another front, lung cancer screening, is limiting progress on life expectancy for cancer patients, where the U.S. is otherwise a leader. Lung cancer is the number one cancer killer, taking about 130,000 lives a year. That's more than breast, prostate, and colon cancer deaths combined. 
Because lung cancer is rarely diagnosed before it spreads, the chances of survival are an abysmal 18%. But when lung cancer is diagnosed early with a CT chest scan, a patient has an 80% chance of living another 20 years, reports Claudia Hinchke, a radiology expert at Mount Sinai Icahn School of Medicine in New York City. That sure beats 18%. The scan takes 15 minutes lying flat on a table that glides in and out of the scanning machine. There's no squeezing like with a mammogram and no yucky preparation like with a colonoscopy. The technology is widely available, recommended, recommended by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, and covered by insurance, but few doctors know to order it, and few patients know to ask. Blame the CDC for this knowledge gap. Only 15% of Americans, Americans who need lung screening are getting it. On December 20th, the White House announced a pilot project to screen and treat cancer. Oh, sorry, that's not for the U.S., it's for women in Botswana. Laughable if it weren't so tragic. Ten years ago, Americans were told the biggest health challenge was the uninsured. Congress passed Obamacare. Now only 9% of Americans are uninsured, but the whole nation faces the prospect of shorter life expectancy. For those lost years, we can thank federal health officials, especially the dysfunctional CDC. Call it the Centers for Decline and Confusion. That from syndicated columnist Betsy McCoy. Turning to sports. Humble Boys Stay Undefeated by Eric Pratt. The eighth-ranked Class 3A Humboldt Boys basketball team likes to launch three-pointers, and the Wildcats are good at it. Even if the shots aren't falling, head coach Jason Thurm's squad has a backup plan just in case. The shooter is thinking make, but the other four guys on offense are anticipating a miss, Thurm said. We're not the biggest ball club in the world, so we have to be aggressive and crash the offensive glass as much as possible. That's a mindset. Offensive rebounding is a must. Humboldt wasn't quite operating like a well-oiled machine on Tuesday in its first matchup against Fort Dodge in over 50 years. The Wildcats still found a way, though, defeating the Dodgers to remain unbeaten at 68-59. Senior Joshua Thurm did have the hot hand, scoring 24 points thanks to six made three-point baskets. Classmate Will Orness drained four triple tries of his own and added 12. As 5-0 Humboldt, which ranks second in the entire state in three-point accuracy, made 14 more shots from deep last night. That didn't, frust that didn't frustrate Fort Dodge senior high head coach Willie Williams as much as the second or even third opportunities the Wildcats created for themselves when they didn't hit the open look. We knew coming in they loved the three, Williams said. They're an excellent shooting team, and we didn't extend the defense as much as we needed to do. What was really hard to accept, though, was not the little things, like not boxing out or keeping them off the glass. We had them for eight offensive rebounds in the third quarter alone, when the Wildcats outscored the Dodgers 21-13. to That just can't happen. 
A top 10 team like that will make you pay if you don't keep them to one field goal attempt per possession. Senior Javon Jondal had a game-high 24 points for Fort Dodge. Sophomore Cade Westerhoff contributed 13. The Dodgers jumped ahead 11-3 early, but the Wildcats responded with an 11-0 run and never looked back. Ahead 37-30 at halftime, Humboldt delivered a knockout punch by tallying the first nine points of the third period. We were a little rusty. It was good to get out there and play again, Thurm said. I thought we shared the ball well and put a few runs together even if we weren't at our best offensively. Fort Dodge is a tough ball club. I give them a lot of credit for taking us out of our rhythm at times. It wasn't pretty, but we found a way. Six-foot-two junior forward Evan Hatcher did an outstanding job on the offensive boards. He was very active for us. Williams called his group's effort much better start to finish. We played hard and with energy. We just didn't execute consistently enough, Williams said. We either have scoring droughts or defensive lapses. Javon's energy and focus was excellent. I thought Cade did a nice job, and it was one of sophomore Drake Warland's better games. Fort Dodge hadn't faced the Wildcats in boys' basketball since the 1971-72 campaign. Humboldt's last victory over the Dodgers before Tuesday came in 1969. The Dodgers, who are 1-5 and five overall, are at Sioux City East on Thursday and at Mason City on Friday. Humboldt has a top-10 showdown with NCC rival Webster City on Friday, back in the Wildcat gym. A story from the Iowa Hawkeyes basketball team. Iowa player McCaffrey taking an indefinite leave. Iowa's Patrick McCaffrey will take an indefinite leave of absence to address a mental health issue, the athletic department announced Tuesday. McCaffrey, son of head coach Fran McCaffrey, said in a statement he has been battling anxiety and that it has reached the point where it inhibits his preparation and performance. It's not fair to myself or teammates to be on the court when I am not myself, he said. The anxiety has affected my sleep, appetite, and stamina, which has resulted in not having the energy level necessary to compete at my full capabilities. Patrick McCaffrey has started all 14 games and is the Hawkeyes' third leading scorer, averaging 12.8 points per game. He struggled the past two games, shooting two for 15 from the field and scoring a combined eight points in losses to Nebraska and Penn State. It might be two games, it may be four games, it may be more, but I will return when I feel like myself, the fourth-year forward said. McCaffrey said the, bat- said the leave of absence is not related to his past battle with cancer. He was 13 years old when he was treated for thyroid cancer. He had two surgeries and was declared cancer-free three months after his diagnosis turning the page. McCaffrey said in a recent interview that the removal of his thyroid caused metabolic changes requiring him to pay close attention to his nutrition and sleep habits. Fran McCaffrey said the effects of his son's anxiety have become more noticeable on and off the court the past couple weeks. 
All of us admire his courage and willingness to be open about this struggle, and we hope others know that they are not alone, the coach said. We will be with him every step of the way. Iowa, which is 8-6 and six overall and 0-3 and three in the Big Ten, plays at home Thursday against number 15, Indiana. And going back to that Fort Dodge Humboldt game, this time on the girls' side, Wildcat girls pull away from Fort Dodge Senior High, this by Eric Pratt also. A strong fourth-quarter surge gave the Humboldt girls' basketball team a 53-46 come-from-behind victory over Fort Dodge on Tuesday night in the Wildcat gym. Head coach Rod Mooney's squad trailed 35-31 heading into the final frame, but it was all Humboldt the rest of the way. The Wildcats scored 22 points in the last eight minutes. Morgan Mann led the home squad with 15 points, while Reagan Lee and Ava Fisher added 12 points each. Humboldt got to the free-throw line 31 times, making 20. Freshman L.J. Mayle finished with a career-high 19 points and 13 rebounds for the Dodgers, who dropped their second consecutive game after starting the year 5-0. Fort Dodge Senior High's two main post players, senior Patine Hively and Laney Mayle, were relatively quiet with 11 and 8 points, respectively. Humboldt also hit five shots from behind the arc, while Fort Dodge didn't convert a single three-pointer. The Dodgers also committed 29 turnovers. LJ played very well. Mia McCabe was strong defensively, and Brooklyn Palmer gave us good minutes off the bench, Fort Dodge head coach Scott Messerly said. But turnovers continue to plague us. You can't have that many on the road and expect to win, and Humboldt won it at the free-throw line. Hively added 10 rebounds and 4 steals. Laney Mail recorded 7 rebounds. The Mail sisters dished out 4 assists each. Fisher sank a trifecta of triples for the Wildcats, 4-3 and three overall. Mann added a pair. Mann, Lee, and Fisher combined to attempt 20 foul shots, converting on 14. The Dodgers returned to action on Thursday at Sioux City East and Friday at Mason City. Humboldt, which is off to a 3-1 and start in the North Central Conference, hosts Webster City on Friday. And we'll close out with this story about the NFL family rallies around the Buffalo Bills Hamlin by John Waro from the AP. With tears beginning to well, Tennessee Titans linebacker Rashad Weaver shook his head and lowered it to his knees, his body swaying as he tried to express what it was like watching friend and former college teammate Damar Hamlin having to be resuscitated back to life on the football field. I don't know, man, Weaver said Tuesday after sobbing uncontrollably at his locker. I missed exactly what happened, but like five seconds later, seeing the first replay of it, just kind of like everybody else sitting there and holding your breath and figure out what happened. Weaver's reaction was that of most everyone watching from home and on the field in Cincinnati on Monday night, when Hamlin, the Buffalo Bills' safety, collapsed while going into cardiac arrest after making what appeared to be a routine tackle. As a second-year Bills player lay sedated in a hospital bed with his family by his side at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, 
where he remained in critical condition. Hamlin's competitive and giving spirit was not lost on those who know him. Dorian Glenn, Hamlin's uncle, told CNN in a televised interview outside the hospital Tuesday that Hamlin needed to have his heart restarted twice, once on the field and again after he arrived at the hospital. Glenn also provided those details to other outlets, including ESPN and NFL Network. They were resuscitating him on the field before they brought him in the hospital and then resuscitated him a second time when he got to the hospital, Glenn said. I just want to show my gratitude for the medical staff that were on hand because if not for them, my nephew probably wouldn't even be here. The chilling scene of Hamlin's collapse, which played out in front of a North American television audience on ESPN's Monday Night Football, has put the NFL on hold with the game suspended. That sparked an outpouring of support in placing Hamlin's life ahead of sports and pushed to the forefront the generous person he is. He has his own clothing brand called Chasing M's, which is about chasing your dreams and chasing millions, said Weaver, who spent four years playing alongside Hamlin at the University of Pittsburgh. And that's everybody's goal in life, reaching your dreams. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. I've been glad to be your reader. My name is Rachel Thorson Mithelman. Thanks for sharing your time with Iowa's the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. 